Andrew Womack Ministries presents part three in the How to Follow God's Will series, a five-part album. This message is titled, The Rod of God. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. So how many of you were not here this morning? Can I see your hand? Bunches of you. Well, I haven't got time to go back and re-preach this morning, but let me just build up to what I'm going to do because it's a continuation of what I did last night. I started a series actually in Orlando, Florida at our last Gospel Truth Seminar talking about how to find God's will. This is a continuation of that talking about how to follow God's will. And last night I was talking about uh, Psalms chapter 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I spent all night trying to explain what that's about. If you just totally sell out to God, God changes the desires in your heart. And basically you can follow the desires of your heart if you are truly seeking God with your whole heart. And so many people have these desires, but they just blow them off. They don't have any confidence in it. And yet if you truly are committed to God, it's God that's put those desires in your heart. And we talked about that last night. This morning, I started using Moses as an example, and I talked about how that Moses knew God's will for his life. And uh, I made a point of this this morning. Let me just say it quickly, that if you get your theology from the show, The Ten Commandments, more than you do the Bible, some of the things I say here are going to seem crossways to what you believe, because the show, The Ten Commandments, didn't portray everything biblically. And one of the things that I shared from uh, Acts chapter 7 was that Moses knew he was a Jew. He knew God's will for his life was to deliver the Israelites out of the Egyptian slavery. And he knew when he went out and killed this Egyptian, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to fulfill God's will. But he missed it in two ways. And I majored mostly this morning on the fact that he was 10 years premature trying to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We got that from Genesis 15 compared to Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. And so you find out that he was 10 years premature. There is a timing to God's will in your life. And he tried to bring deliverance before God prophesied it. You can't speed up God's timetable, but you can delay it. You can mess up the things of God, but you aren't going to speed him up. You aren't going to be able to microwave your miracle. Amen. You have to be dependent upon God and on his timing. So Moses missed that. But also Moses tried to bring God's power to pass and release God's power through his life, through his natural ability and through his position. And it was miraculous. Everything about Moses was miraculous. It was a miracle that he lived it was a miracle that not only he lived, but he was raised in the very household of the person who was trying to kill him. He was raised and became one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And he had this position of high authority and power. He was over the military. There were so many things that in the natural, it would look like that this certainly was part of God's plan for bringing deliverance to the Israelites. Why else would a Jew have been raised in an Egyptian household and be second or third in command to the throne? All of it made sense. The only thing wrong with it was it wasn't God. Not everything that's good is God. You have to get to where you understand that God's ways of doing things are different than your ways. For instance, we just talked about finances. 
Did you know it makes sense that if you need money, that what you need to do is hoard? But that it makes sense, but it's wrong. The Bible says, if you need, give and it shall be given unto you. And you have to get to where you find God's way of doing things and not lean under your own understanding. Moses did what most of us would have done. And we would have looked at our position, all of the clout, all of the recognition, the authority, the power, the supernatural things. And we would have supposed that God was going to use us because of look who we are, look what God's done. And we would have tried to bring God's will to pass in our own power. So you not only need to know God's timing, but you need to have God's plan. And you're going to find out that God's plan is nearly always different than your plan. God's ways aren't our ways and it's going to be different. So Moses messed up the whole thing. He was premature because of this. He had to flee from Pharaoh. Pharaoh tried to kill him. And it looks like in Exodus chapter 2 that he ran because he was afraid of Pharaoh. But over in Hebrews chapter 11, it says he didn't fear the wrath of the king. He endured not fearing the wrath of the king is what it says. So the Bible comments on itself. It doesn't contradict itself. So which is it? He fled because he knew he had messed up and that he was going to be killed. But he fled out of discretion, out of just... He knew that for him to fulfill God's will, he had to live. And so he fled. But it wasn't because he was afraid of the king. It was because he knew he had messed up God's plan. And he needed to regroup. It was a strategic retreat. And according to Scripture, for 40 years in the wilderness, he was praying and asking God for another chance. And so let's turn over to Exodus chapter 3 and read about at the end of 40 years, after Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness, God appears unto Moses. And so it says in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a, uh, of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not consumed. You know, I'm not going to make a major point of this, but this is a big point. And I'm just not going to spend a lot of time on it. But again, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He was still seeking after God and trying to fulfill God's will and knew that God had a plan for his life. And he was looking for God. He was wanting God to intervene. And when he saw this bush that was on fire and yet it wasn't consumed, he turned aside and said, I'm going to go see this great sight. And it was only after he turned aside that the voice of God came to him. It was the voice of God that arrested him. It was the voice of God that changed him. But you know how God got his attention was through a bush that was on fire. He could have walked by it. He could have said, man, I've got another mile to go. I've got to get these flocks to the well before a certain time. Just like all of us, we're busy but you know what? He was looking for God and when he saw something abnormal, he said, I'm going to turn aside and see this. And you can see this same thing happen in a lot of different ways. When the disciples were in that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, it said Jesus came walking unto them on the water. It's recorded in Mark chapter 6 also in Matthew chapter 14. 
Jesus was walking on the water and it says in Mark 6, he would have passed by them. Now, you know that the reason he came was because they were drowning. He was coming out there to save his disciples. He wasn't just out on the lake for a stroll and it so happened that he got close to their boat. He was there to help them. You know, if it would have been us and these were our disciples, man, we would have come running out there waving our arms. Hold on, I'm coming. I'm, you know, hold the fort. I'll be there in a minute. We would have done something like that. But Jesus, he just came walking and he would have walked by them. Some people don't read the Bible and think about this, but why would he have walked by them? Because you know what? He presents himself. He shows you he's there, but the Lord is not going to force himself on anybody. God doesn't come into your life and make you follow him. When I first got turned on to the Lord, I felt like there was so far for me to go that it was so easy for me to miss God. I prayed a lot. God, just make me do what you want me to do. I give you the right. Make it happen. Force me to do it. You know what? He doesn't do it that way. He will present himself. He'll come to you. But if you're so occupied with this life, if you're so busy watching as the stomach turns on television and doing everything that we get involved in, you know what? You can miss God. He's there and people just miss him. You know, yesterday we had a golf tournament for the Bible college and we were out all day and it was beautiful weather and stuff. And, you know, some of you have lived here so long, you just take it for granted. But man, it's a beautiful spring. The azaleas, the dogwoods, the red buds are out. It is absolutely awesome. And I was just praising God and looking at all this, thinking about, man, it's awesome. You know, the Bible says in, in um, Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no tongue nor language where their voice hasn't been heard. Their voice has gone forth into all of the earth. God is screaming at us every day. Mankind and science and all of their ability can't create an azalea, a dogwood. They can create something that looks like it, but it can't grow and it can't have little baby dogwoods. And it can't produce baby azaleas and it doesn't come and go and lose its leaves. It's just a miracle. And there's people that miss it. They say, well, there's no evidence of God around. How dumb can you get and still breathe? People think that this just happened. Mankind, all of our, you could pool the resources of the entire human race and they can't create one flower. They can create something that'll mimic it and look like, you know, mankind can't create a blade of grass. They can create astroturf or something that looks like it, but it'll never reproduce and have a baby blade of grass. It can't, it can't reproduce and live. Mankind can't do the simplest thing. And people are saying, I just, I don't have any proof that there's God. Man, it's a good thing I'm not God. I mean, that'd just make me want to drop kick you off the earth. Doom into the universe. Like how dumb can you get? I saw a poster one time that had a picture probably of the Himalayas. It was just these huge mountain peaks and 
peak after peak after peak as far as you could see. And it was this awesome, awesome picture. And the caption on it says, what do I have to do to get your attention? God. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, the, you know, air. People talk about evolution, that it just happened and these things came from a one cell thing. And, but air's not alive. And yet, did you know it's a perfect balance of air? If we had more oxygen in the atmosphere, we wouldn't be able to survive. If we had more nitrogen, if it was a different mix, it's just perfect. It didn't evolve. It didn't just come to pass accidentally somehow. I, I tell you, we could just go on and on and on. God is everywhere and there are so many things, but we get so busy, we just miss it. Praise God. To Moses' credit, he was persevering is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. He was looking for God. He was saying, God, I've messed up, but I know that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. Romans eleven twenty nine. he probably didn't quote that verse, but he knew the principle. He was believing that God was still going to give him another chance and he was looking for God. And when he saw something that was out of the ordinary, he turned aside. If he hadn't have turned aside, it's very possible God wouldn't have spoken to him. You got to be looking for God. There's a reason why some people find God. People say, I found God. God's not the one that's lost. It's us that get found and God has little markers all along the way. Some of you, you know, we were out playing golf and we saw this tree that I'm sure was 150 years old. It was one of the most awesome trees I've ever seen. It was huge. It was just, it was a beautiful tree. And many of you see things like that. You got them in your front yard and can't find God. And he's just shouting at you through creation. It, it, speech has gone forth. There's all kinds of things happening and it's just our hard-heartedness that makes us so insensitive to God. God's not hard to find. He's just hard to find in the light of your TV unless you're watching the gospel truth. Amen. You're just looking in the wrong places. We're occupied with the wrong things, but we need to recognize that, man, you need to be looking for God. If you're looking for God, He'll be found. If you seek, you'll find Somebody says, oh, I saw it and I didn't find. Well, the Bible says you seek, you find. The Bible says you seek, you find. You say, I saw it and I didn't find. Who am I going to believe? You or the Bible? You may think, well, I I gave him five minutes before my favorite program came on. God, if you'll reach me before this movie comes on, and then I'll serve you the rest of my life. God doesn't work on your timetable. You have to seek with all of your heart. So anyway, I just nearly preached on that. But you can recognize that God had something there that caught his attention. And he says, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. You need to be looking for God. You need to be expecting God to intervene. You know, some of you saw the interview that I did with Joe Nay on the internet. He was like my father in the faith. Angie, was. weren't you there when we did that interview? Oh, you weren't there. But anyway, it was a great interview. And one of the things we talked about was when we first got turned on to the Lord, we'd read the book of Acts and see where there was a rushing mighty wind came through. And we would sit down and talk about that. And we were saying, Father, we want a rushing mighty wind. 
We want to have an experience with the Holy Spirit. And we would sit around and daydream about things. And I remember one night we were sitting around talking about this and there was a candle burning on the table. And I mean, there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. It sounded like a tornado and the curtain stood out and blew. And yet that candle never flickered. There was a sound and some of the effects of a wind, but it wasn't just a normal wind. And even though we were talking about it, man, I was 18 years old. It scared the fire out of me. (laughs) I ran home. I got in my car and went home and jumped in my bed and put my covers over my head as if that's going to protect me from the power of the Holy Spirit. But you know why we had things like that happen? Because we were looking for it. We were wanting it. We were seeking it. You know, you get hungry, you'll be filled. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for you shall be filled. If you aren't full, if you say, oh, I'm hungry, God, where are you? It's because you aren't, you know what? You aren't really seeking God. When you get hungry and really seek the Lord, He'll fill you. Amen. Amen. Praise God, I've got to go on. So in verse 4, when the Lord saw that He turned aside... To see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Man, that's a great thing right there. You know what? When you get in the real presence of God, you know, people think, well, people think, well, I'm going to ask God why he didn't do this and why he didn't heal this person. And how come God let this happen and all? And we have all of these things that we're going to do when we see God. You know what? When you stand before almighty God and see him in his glory, you're going to fall flat of your face and say, praise God, I didn't ask that stupid question. (laughs) For you to sit there and say, I'm going to ask God about this. You arrogant thing. You don't have a clue who God is. I could preach on that, but I'm not going to. Anyway, for time's sake, let me just go through here that the Lord told him. He says, I'm sending you down to Egypt and you're going to bring deliverance and you're going to bring the Jews out and you're going to worship on this mountain. And Moses, look at his response down here. I think in verse 11, it says, And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now contrast this with 40 years earlier. God revealed to him that he was the one that was going to bring deliverance to the Jews. And Moses just thought, Oh God, what a wise choice. Look at me. I'm second, third in command. I've got the armies under my control. It was miraculous. God, I can take it from here. He was self-confident. He was arrogant. He wasn't dependent upon God. He didn't get God's timing or his plan. But 40 years later, here he is saying, God, who am I? You know, this is why it took 40 years. It took 40 years from him to come to the end of himself. You don't find the beginning of God until you get to the end of yourself. As long as you are sufficient in yourself, as long as you can trust yourself, then you know what? You're going to have a hard time trusting God. You need to come to the end of yourself. Really, it's a blessing when you hit a wall 
and nothing's working and you finally say, oh God, I can't do it. I need your help. That's good. I had one of my friends one time, a very good friend, a golfing buddy of mine. He came to me one night and his business had just folded and it looked like he was going to lose everything. And the pressure of all of that caused him to have heart trouble. And he had just gotten back from the doctor that day. And the doctor told him he had serious heart trouble and he could potentially die. And this guy who was a strong guy was just reduced to tears. He and his wife were sitting there just crying and, oh, it's terrible and my business is failing. My family's falling apart. Uh, our, my health is gone. And he was just devastated and told me about all of this. And when he did, I said, Tim, that's wonderful. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, why would you say that's wonderful? And I said, you know what? You're a wonderful guy, but the biggest problem that you have is you. And I said, right now, you're to the end of yourself. You aren't making it financially. You aren't making it physically. I said, this is wonderful. Now it's got to be God. I said, if you'll just turn to the Lord, this could be the greatest thing. And did you know that he received that and it changed his life and his spiritual life with the Lord just went through the roof. And he, I don't know how many years ago that was. That was the beginning of our school. So maybe 15 years ago. And you know what? He's doing good. His business is prospered. He's making money hand over fist. His health is doing good. Everything's working. And it was a turning point. I tell you, it's good when you come to the end of yourself. Maybe the way you got there isn't good. You can come to the end of yourself through the school of hard knocks or you could do it because the Word says it. It'd be better to just receive this truth. It'd be better to take my, my uh, instruction and take my word for it and just believe me rather than you have to crash and burn on your own. But any way you come to the end of yourself is where you start really finding God active in your life. And so Moses was a different person. He's saying, God, I can't do it. Who am I? Totally changed. He lost that arrogance, this self-confidence that he had. He was now nobody. He was no longer second in command of Egypt. He was a guy that was herding sheep on the backside of the desert, working for his father-in-law. And anyway, God goes on and tells him they, they will believe you and he promises that they'll do all of these things. And then in chapter 4, after God had promised him that they would believe you and you, they will come out, Moses said this in chapter 4 verse 1, and Moses answered and says, but behold, they will not believe me. He just said, they will believe you. He says, they won't believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Again, put this in context with the book of Hebrews. He persevered as seeing him who is invisible. He wasn't running from God. He had been looking for this opportunity to get back and to fulfill God's will. And yet he had lost this self-confidence. He was no longer arrogant at all. He was still believing that God was going to use him. But he had come to a place where, how can you use me? Look what I've done. I actually killed a man thinking that this was going to fulfill God's will. It's amazing what you can rationalize and justify in your own mind. But it's not God. And so he says, they won't believe me. And look at this in verse 2. This is chapter 4, verse 2. And the Lord said unto him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. It's just a stick. He was saying, God, it won't work. God, I want to do it, but I can't do it. They won't believe me. And God says, what do you have in your hand? And he says, a stick. And look at this. The Lord said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. 
Now again, you got to remember, Moses was looking for God. He had persevered for 40 years. For 40 years, he had been saying, God, I'm sorry. I blew it. I know what your will for my life was. And yet I messed it up by trying to do it myself. God, I'll do it your way. God, I'll do anything you have to say. He had been seeking God. And this is the only recorded time that God appeared to him during those 40 years. There could have been something else, but nothing's recorded in Scripture. As far as Scripture goes, this is the only real encounter he had had with the Lord. And so here he is, 40 years later, he's in the presence of God. He had to hide his face so that he wouldn't look on God and die. This is what he'd been after for 40 years. And yet when he threw that stick on the ground and it turned into a serpent, he fled. He was ready to leave it all and get away to get away from that snake. There are some people that don't mind handling snakes, but Moses wasn't one of them. He was willing to forsake what he had been after for 40 years to get away from that snake. Moses was not one of these guys that liked to handle snakes. You know what was happening here? Forty years before, Moses knew God's will, but he was going to do it in his own strength and his own power. God, I'll take care of it. Thank you for showing me what you want done. I can handle it from here. Now, here he is 40 years later. He'd been through Bush University for 40 years. <laughs> Moses went to Bible college for 40 years trying to learn. Don't lean under your own understanding. Listen to God. Do it God's way. God had been instructing him. And you know what this was? This was his final exam. God says, what do you have in your hand? And he says, a stick. He says, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and it turned into a snake and he was out of there. And the voice of the Lord called and said, pick it up by the tail. And you know, if you pick a serpent up by the tail, then the serpent is free to turn and bite you. You have no control. If you're going to pick a snake up, you have to pick it up by its jaws, right behind its jaws, so that its body, as it turns, can't bite you. For you to pick a snake up by the tail means that you don't have control. And you know what? Moses didn't have the benefit of knowing the last half of Exodus 4.4. He hadn't written it yet. He didn't know that this snake was going to turn back into a, a rod, a stick. I mean, from his perspective, here is a venomous snake and God says, pick it up by the tail. In other words, God says, put your life on the line. Obey me and do something that could kill you. And Moses had been saying, God, I'll do anything. God, I'll do it your way. Promise, I'll do it your way. God, I'll obey you. And God says, let's see. Pick up that snake by the tail. And you know what? From Moses' perspective, this was death. This could have ended everything. All of his dreams, what he had been working for, for 80 years by this time, it could have all been over. He could have been bitten and he'd have died. And to Moses' credit, he decided that, you know what? I'd be better off to obey God if it looks like it's going to kill me than to lean onto my own understanding. Moses had learned the lesson and he picked the snake up by the tail. Did you know that every one of us, this same principle is going to operate in your life when you try and follow God's will. God will reveal His will to you and He'll start leading you, but our selfishness, our, our human tendency to just do it my way and not depend on God you know, all of us tend to control our own lives and we don't like being told what to do, not even by God. 
And we just like to do things our way. It's a, it's a characteristic of fallen human beings. And I can guarantee you in the process of finding God's will and then trying to fulfill it, you're going to sooner or later think that you know more than God does and that your wisdom is better than God's wisdom. You know, when Jamie and I were in ministry, we struggled and struggled. And, and finally, in, in Childress, Texas, we began to see enough progress, enough response that we were actually eating on a regular basis. And we actually bought a house in Childress, Texas. I mean, that's pretty good for people that couldn't eat and went weeks without eating. And we saw light at the end of the tunnel and it wasn't another train. It was an exit. It's like, we are going to make it. We are going to live. For the first time, people were getting healed. Miracles were happening. People were brought in ambulances and instantly healed. And we started seeing people saved and things happening. And it looked like, praise God, God did call us. We are going to survive. And did you know, in the midst of that, it wasn't a big church. We had 50 or 60 people coming. That wasn't big, but for the first time, we were making it. Things were working. People's lives were being changed. I'd started on radio and we were beginning to make an impact and things were happening. And in the midst of that... I went to Pritchett, Colorado to hold a meeting in a church that had 10 people. There was 144 people in the town of Pritchett. And Pritchett was 30 miles from Kim that had 100 people. We were out in the middle of nowhere. And I went to Pritchett and held this meeting just thinking that this is going to be a three-day meeting and this is it. We're out of here. I didn't want to go to Pritchett. But we had an opportunity to minister, so I went there. And anyway, we saw a man raised from the dead. And the guy was raised from the dead. The sheriff was there trying to get his oxygen mask out. And I just walked in, commanded him to come back to life. And he came back to life. And this little town of 144 people got rocked by the power of God. And man, people started coming out of the woodwork. We were having 100 in our church service in a town of 144 people. And we were seeing things happening. People's lives were being changed. And the meeting was over and I was leaving. And they came over and they said, you can't do this to us. You've come in here and you've ruined all of our theology. You've turned everything we knew upside down. And you're going to come in here and rock our world and then walk out and leave us? You can't do this. And I said, I'm not staying in Bridget. <laughs> I said, I've got a church and children's and praise God, we are seeing good things happening. And it's growing and things are beginning to happen. They said, you can't do this. And I said, bye. And before I got out of the city limits, which was a block down the street... <laughs> I knew that we were supposed to go back to Pritchett, Colorado. And did you know, from my perspective, really, most of you, you wouldn't have thought what we had in Childress was nice, but it was, it was success in a measure for the first time. And it was exciting. And it was the first time it looked like that we were really impacting people's lives and somebody was getting touched and something good was happening. And... I left all of that to go to a town of 144 people with 10 people in the church. No salary, no income, nothing. 
And you know what? It was just like, I'll pick up this serpent by the tail. This is going to kill me. But you know what? I know this is what God wants me to do. And so I'll do it. And it looked like that that was it. Everything that I was dreaming of about impacting people and reaching large numbers of people and seeing people's lives change, it was going to die in Pritchett, Colorado. That's what we thought when we went there. But we knew it's what God wanted. And so we were glad to do it, but it looked like the loss of everything. Did you know that this happens? You can go to Scripture and find this with every person that God's ever used. Abraham, God told him he was going to have a son. He finally, after 26 years, has this miracle son, Isaac. And then when Isaac is about 17 years old, God says, go sacrifice him. Kill the promised child. The death of your vision. Did you know this is going to happen to every one of you? As God leads you, you've got to quit leaning under your own understanding and trying to do it by your power and leaning upon your own wisdom and doing things your way. And it'll be different for every person, but it'll be the same point that's being accomplished is God's got to get you to where you are no longer running the show and you are deferred to Him and you are dependent upon God telling you what to do. And that's what God was doing with Moses. Moses, it's 40 years later. You still think you can do it through your own might and power? You're no longer in control of the army. You're no longer anybody special. You're herding sheep. You're nobody. You're nothing. You're base. You're despised. Now I can use you. And he still says, I want to see, are you willing to do it my way? So he says, cast it down. He became a serpent. He picked it up by the tail thinking it was going to kill him. But you know what? It turned back into a stick. And you know, to everybody else, if we would have been there, if there would have been a scientist there, and if they would have picked up this, uh, if Moses would have told them, you know, this stick turned into a snake. And if a scientist took it and said, let me see. If they'd have taken a sample of it and have run some tests on it, I guarantee it still would have been whatever kind of wood it was. From the natural means, it still looked like a stick. That's all it was. But look down here in the fourth chapter. After all of this, it says that Moses finally got the point. And in verse 20... It says, And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. In the second verse, God says, What do you have in your hand? He says, A stick. It was just a stick. It was a plain old stick. If Moses hit a rock with it, all it did do is break the stick or either jar him. It didn't have any more power than what Moses had. It was Moses' stick. But when he threw it down before God and it turned into something that could kill him and God says, grab it by the tail. And he was no longer in charge of it, but he was on the receiving end. It was totally up to God what happened. Then God gave it back to him. To everybody else, it looked like the same stick. But now the Bible calls it the rod of God. It wasn't Moses' stick anymore. It was God's stick. And you know, this is what God is asking for us. If you want to follow God's will, you're going to come through a a process like this to where God 
is going to say, will you really trust me? And he will ask you to sacrifice something. He'll ask you to lay your life down. Will you turn your life over to me? And you'll, you'll think, if I, do, if, I, if I give up on my dreams, I'm going to die. I, it'll never work. And you want to lean under your own understanding and keep control of things. But I'm telling you, if you keep control of your life, it's never going to have any more power than what you can put behind it. But if you will turn your life over to God, a living sacrifice, and lay yourself down and take it back, God will give it back to you, but you won't be in control. You'll grab it by the tail. And it'll now be totally under His direction. And He'll tell you. And if He tells you to go to Pritchett, Colorado, to the end of the earth, you'll say, yes, sir. And if He tells you that, you know what, I don't want you doing what you're doing. I was talking to a man last night who's a dentist and a successful dentist and got a great uh, uh, business. And yet he says, I know that this isn't what God wants me to do. This is what my family wanted me to do. And he says, I'm just praying. God, show me what to do. How can I do it? You know, there's a lot of people that, man, a dentist, they make fairly good money and they're a doctor and look at all of this effort. And you know what? There's people that would let circumstances and other things rule them. And yet this man, by his own admission, is saying in his heart that he knows God has something different for him. Somehow God is going to ask him to lay that down and to take a step of faith. And from the natural realm, it's going to look like that, you know what? I'll die. I can't maintain my standard of living. I can't live in this nice house. I no longer, everybody's going to look up to me and call me doctor somebody. And you know what? There's a lot of people that aren't willing to let go. They're going to hold on to the clout and the power that they have. And because of it, they'll miss God's will. But when Moses did this, he got back much more than he gave. He gave up a stick. It was a piece of wood. It was a dead piece of wood. He gave that to God. God gave him back something that to other people looked the same, but now it was God's stick. And when he held it out over the river, they turned into blood. He could hold it up to the sky and hail and fire would come out of a clear sky and fire run along upon the ground. They had darkness for three days over the land of Egypt. No sun, absolute total darkness, and yet they had sunshine, not just light, but sunshine inside the dwellings of the Israelites. The sun was shining inside of their house and it was pitch dark outside. They had all of the cattle of the Egyptians die and then the fence line right here and there's the Israelites and they all lived through it. It was miraculous. Man, he got back the power of God. I'm telling you that you'll always come out on the better end of the deal if you will make a trade with God. God may ask for everything you've got, but he'll give you everything he's got. You'll always be better off to lay your life down. But brothers and sisters, this is probably the number one thing that stops people. I think that there's a lot of people that don't have a clue what God wants them to do. But then there's other people that have a a clue. God shows them what He wants them to do. But then they try and accomplish it in their own strength and own power. And as long as you are operating under your own strength and power and wisdom, you're no match for the devil. Satan will outsmart you every time. Satan will lay a trap for you. He will entice you with pride and arrogance and other things. And unless you have literally laid your life down and said, God, it's not me. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. 
I'll do whatever you ask. Until you get to that place, I can guarantee you Satan will beat you. Whether you understand it or not, you are a fallen human being. You are not perfect. There is only one God and you are not Him. You need God. You need help. You are not just your self-made man or woman. If you're a self-made man or woman, you're a failure. And if you hadn't failed yet, it just hold on, you will. You know, one of the things that really helped me when I got started was within Childress, Texas, I went and ministered in nursing homes. And I ministered in nursing homes two or three times a week. And it was really good for me because I saw people who were very wealthy, people who were very successful in the, in the natural world in their younger days. And yet in their older days, they had ceased to have, be successful. You know what? You're, if nothing else, old age is going to catch up with you. And I don't believe you have to be decrepit and sick and all of those things. But you know what? You are going to pass your prime someday. And every one of us is going to come to the end of your physical strength. And when you do, these people who had always trusted in themselves. I remember one woman in particular who was a Methodist pastor's wife. She sat there and she was a real proper looking lady. She was a nice looking lady, always dressed up. Her hair was always combed. You could tell that she had been one of the movers and shakers in society and Stuff And yet she sat there and cried all day, every day about nobody ever came to see her or her kids didn't come to see her. She used to be important. She used to tell me about how people just used to think she was the greatest and now nobody paid any attention to her. And you know what? Unless Jesus comes, every one of us is going to come to the end of yourself. If nothing else, old age will catch you. And the truth is, most of us, it doesn't take near that long before we mess up, and before we crash and burn. And you just need to recognize that you cannot accomplish God's will in your own strength and power. And so when God asks you to make a total surrender and yield to Him and whatever He wants you to do, do it. I'm telling you, you'll be better off because then you'll get God's strength and power. Moses couldn't have gone down to Egypt and if he'd have held his stick out over the Nile and touched the Nile with his stick, it wouldn't have done a thing. But because it was now God's stick, man, it could turn the rivers into blood and send shivers down Pharaoh's spine because it was God's power in him. If you want God's power in you, you've got to come to this place to where you turn your life over and lay it down and say, God... I'll do it your way. And give up on yourself and on your great wisdom and all of your carnal plans and say, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be anything. And when you do that, God will give your life back and you still get to choose, but now you will choose the right thing because you've given the right to the Lord. And the Lord, when He speaks to you, you'll respond to Him. And it'll still be a step of faith on your part. You'll have to follow Him and be obedient to Him, and you probably won't do it perfectly. But you, if you have the right heart, when you do make a mistake, you'll say, Father, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't realize I was falling back into the same thing. Did you know just because you make this commitment, you have to live it out. Look at in the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. Here's Moses again. And this is after he's brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And they now are already out of the land of Egypt. And in the 14th chapter, 
the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they may that they turn and encamp before I don't know how to pronounce that word. Between Migdal and the sea, over against Beelzebon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all of the host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So the Lord told uh, Moses to go camp in a place where there was a Red Sea on one side and then two mountains on the other side and they were in this valley and it was like a box canyon. There was nowhere to go. They were trapped. And he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he'll say they are entangled in the land. In other words, a military guy would see this as an opportunity to get vengeance upon the Israelis for the firstborn being killed and them spoiling Egypt and humiliating them and everything. And God says, I'm going to harden his heart. And he'll look at you and say, man, they are trapped in the wilderness and I'm going to draw Pharaoh out and you will, uh, they'll be destroyed. So God told Moses what to do. Basically what he did was set a trap for Pharaoh and he says, I'm going to draw him and they'll be destroyed. So he told him it's going to be a trap and that you're going to win over the Egyptians. He told him everything that would happen. So Moses obeyed and sure enough, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh and got all of his people together and started pursuing the Israelites. And he came down and when the Israelites saw them, it says in verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord and they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou brought us out to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Boy, what a grateful group of people. (laughs) Boy, there's a lot of peril. I'm not going to mention that or I'll stay on it. But in verse 11, it says, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. That sounds like a pretty good statement. But look at the next verse. It says, The Lord... Or excuse me, the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And then the next verse in verse 15, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. You know, if you would read this and think about it, here's the people in full scale revolt, panicking, because here come the Egyptians after them and they're saying, What to God we had died? And they wanted to make a captain and go back. And Moses stills them all by saying, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You don't have to fight. God's going to fight for you. And all of a sudden, the anointing of God that came through him, the whole group that was in revolt, it was like a civil war. They just all of a sudden stopped. They were completely silent. Here's Moses. He stopped an entire revolt. Here come the Egyptians still coming. And then the Lord says, why are you crying unto me? Somewhere in between that, fear not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Somewhere in between that bold statement, Moses looked and the people looked and here came the Egyptians. And apparently 
Moses must have fallen on his face and said, oh God, what are we going to do? God, do a miracle. God, stop the Egyptians. He was crying out unto God and God said, why are you crying unto me? Most of us would think, well, I could give you a number of good reasons. (laughs) Amen. How about a million Egyptians coming after us or whatever? God says, why are you crying unto me? Boy, this is, this is a powerful truth. This changed my life. God says, why are you crying unto me? Take the rod and hold it out over the sea and part the sea. You know what that rod was? That rod was his final exam. He had turned his life over to God. He's the one that gave God that rod and now God gave it back and it was not Moses' rod, it was God's rod. God was saying, Moses, take the authority that I've given you. Don't you remember that you turned your life over to me and you took it up by the tail and I gave it back? That's not your rod, it's my rod. It's not your life but it's Christ living through you. When you turn your life over to the Lord, then when you get into a situation, instead of praying like, oh God, the doctor says I'm going to die. Could you please do something? And people approach the Lord as if, God, it's cancer. I have no power. That's that's terrible. You have the power of God. You have God Almighty living on the inside of you. And if you have turned your life over to Him, you're the one with power. Cancer ought to tremble at you. You're the one with authority and power. And instead of you being intimidated by sickness and by your problems, God is telling you tonight through me, quit crying unto Him. Quit begging God as if He hasn't done anything. God gave you power. And if you've turned your life over to Him, now take that power that he gave back to you and take your authority and you command your situation to change. You stand there and do something about it. Man, God told him, get up off of your face and take the rod and do something. And I am convinced that if Moses hadn't have gotten up off of his face, if he would have just stayed there in intercession and begged and pleaded with God, they'd have all been destroyed. He had to get up off of his face. There's a time to pray and there's a time not to pray. There's a time for you to believe what God said, that he gave you power and authority and take that authority. And you command sickness. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can't ask God to rebuke the devil for you. He told you to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You've got to take your authority and power. And brothers and sisters, you don't have that kind of a boldness. You don't have that kind of a relationship with God if you've never thrown your life down before Him and taken it up by the tail to where it looks like it's going to kill you. And yet, it's no longer your life. It's no longer me living, but it's Christ living in me. Unless you've done that, you won't have this boldness and authority and you will be overcome in the wilderness and by the enemy when they come against you. You need to turn your life over. But if you've done that, then you need to take that authority. You know, Jamie and I heard a man preach basically this sermon back in 1973 or either the first part of 74. And we had just gotten married. I was more zealous than I was smart. I took all of the money we had. We had about $5,000 I'd saved. 
from Vietnam and stuff. And I had that in my bank account and I cashed it all into $100 bills and gave $5,000 away in three days. I just couldn't, I was giving it away to people in 7-Eleven stores, just anybody. I couldn't wait to get out to where I was on faith, trusting God <laughs> instead of... How dumb can you get and still breathe? And because of it, we got poor. And we were having financial problems and we had rent that was due. And I think it was, I forgot, it was like $100 rent or something. But we were behind more than one month and we got an eviction notice. We had to have $160 or we would be evicted the next morning. And here I was, a minister, couldn't pay my bills, going to be evicted. And Jamie and I drove to uh, a meeting that night in Greenville, Texas. Drove over there, sang Psalms chapter 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation all the way over there and praised God and just believed that God was going to perform a miracle. And we heard a man minister a message along this about the rod of God and God spoke to me and the Lord says, you know what? You've turned your life over to me. You're doing what I've told you to do. I wasn't doing it perfectly. That's the reason we had this poverty because I made some mistakes, but my heart was right. And the Lord told me, he says, you take your authority and you command this situation to change. And I went up and prayed with that man and told him, I said, we're going to be evicted in the morning. We got an eviction notice. And he says, well, man, you need to take your rod and hold it out and command the power of God to flow. And so I agreed with him and we commanded and I got so fired up that when we went home, I told Jamie, I said, if God has to turn this um, folding chair into money, he's going to do it. But I know God's meeting my needs. I laid hands on that chair and commanded whatever it took (laughs) for us to get our money and we went to bed. And you know, my sister was at that meeting, Joyce. I got my niece, nephew down here. And uh, Joyce was at that meeting and her husband, Leon, wasn't at the meeting. He didn't go to a lot of meetings with us. He thought we were a little bit weird. (laughs) But Joyce, she was as weird as I was. And so she was at that meeting and she just happened to hear me tell this guy uh, what had happened and that we were going to get evicted. And my sister thought, oh, no, because my brother-in-law, Leon, he's a great guy. We've had a great relationship. But Leon, he just thought I was absolutely crazy when I had this relationship with the Lord. And Leon told me, you're going to starve to death. You can't do this. And he told me a number of times, you are just as crazy as you can possibly be. And he liked me, but he just thought I was crazy. And uh, anyway... Joyce thought, oh man, if I go home and tell Leon that Andrew and Jamie are going to get evicted, it's going to confirm every doubt that he's ever had. And he's going to say, I knew y'all are just fanatics and you're crazy. And so she didn't say a word. She went home and didn't tell him a word. They were living in commerce. Were you there in commerce, Texas? That's before your time. You weren't even born yet. And anyway, they were in Commerce, Texas. He was going to school trying to get his doctorate degree and they were just barely getting by on a shoestring. And so anyway, Joyce went home and he asked about the meeting and she told him and he said, what did he preach on? She talked about that and she said, did you see anybody you knew? And she told him some people and he just kept asking questions. And anyway, Leon just said, 
Well, did you, did you see anybody else? And she had mentioned somebody else. And finally he says, were Andy and Jamie there? And she says, well, yes, they were there. And he says, have they starved to death yet? And she says, well, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, they are going to be evicted in the morning unless they get $160. And Leon, I knew it. I knew this wouldn't work. I knew y'all are crazy. And he got upset and mad and stormed out of the house. And Joyce, you know, she just didn't have much to say. And three o'clock in the morning, Leon knocks on my door. It was about an hour and a half or two hour drive. And he wakes us up at three o'clock in the morning and I get up and let him in and he comes in and sits down and just starts shooting the breeze and (laughs) visiting. I say, Leon, what are you doing? And he says, Joyce told me about you getting evicted in the morning. And I started to try and say, look, you know, I, I, I was going to try and explain it when there's no way to explain it. But before I could say anything, he says, don't ask me any questions. Don't say anything. But if I've ever heard God in my life, God told me to give you $160. And he gave us... $160, which I found out later, that was their entire bank account. They didn't have a penny left. And he was in university trying to get his doctor's degree. And some of you think, well, it was a relative. Uh, this was a greater miracle than if God would have turned that chair into money. Amen. That chair turning into money wouldn't have been near as big a miracle as having Leon give me that money. It was God. And you know what? I learned some lessons through that. And praise God, you know, we finally learned that if you're going to work, I mean, if you don't work, then don't eat. And I learned that I should have been out working a job. But, you know, even though I messed up, God still met our needs and we survived. But I'm telling you, the same principle works. That there are some of you that you have committed your life to the Lord. You have followed God. You are in a situation. And see, Moses, the reason I brought this out, Moses had finally come to the end of himself and saying, God, I can't. It's got to be you. But there's a balance between this. There's a lot of people that go around recognizing their unworthiness and they've got that side of the equation, but they don't understand that even though I can do nothing by myself, I can also do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you've got to have both of those in balance Once Moses turned his life over to God and God gave that stick back and it was now the rod of God, when he fell on his face and started crying out to God, God got upset. Get up off of your face. Quit crying unto me. Use what I've given you. There's got to be a balance between these two. You've got to recognize that without Christ, I can do nothing. But praise God, I'm not without Christ. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. You... See, some people just can't harmonize these things. They think they're opposites. You're telling me that I got to come to the end of myself, that I got to quit running my own life. I got to quit being in control, that I'm, I can't do it in my own. And then on the other hand, you're telling me I've got to stand up and take my authority and speak and bind and be bold and do all of this. Most people see those as opposites. But what I'm talking about is you got to have no confidence in the flesh. 
You got to have no confidence in yourself, but you've got to have great confidence in your relationship with God and Christ on the inside of you. You know, I'm an introvert by nature and, and I'm doing something that I can't do. In high school, people would say hi to me and they'd be two blocks down the street before I could say hi back. <laughs> I couldn't talk to people. You know, we had this girl see me on television recently, Sharon Self, and she emailed us. And she was the cheerleader, one of the most popular girls in the school. And I was inquiring. She came up and asked me how to spell something because she thought I could spell. And I, I mean, here's a popular girl in the school and I got nervous and scared. And she says, how do you, Andy, how do you spell something? I, I said, uh, I never did smell very good. I meant to say spell, <laughs> but I said, I never did smell very good. And so she started laughing and everybody in the whole place laughed at me and just made it all worse. I couldn't hardly talk to people. You know what? I'm doing things that it's physically impossible for me to do. I don't have any confidence in myself. If you were to just let me on my own, I'd still be like a turtle and pull inside my shell. That's my nature. But you know what? I'm also another person in Christ. And I know that God has done something in my life. And I'm doing things that I couldn't do before. And I've got boldness and authority in my life that isn't human. It's not just me. And you have to have these things in balance. You are nothing by yourself. You're just human and you're unqualified. God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. You aren't going to be the first one. God hasn't chosen you because you're a silver vessel. It's because you're a surrendered vessel. If you're enamored with who you are, then you know what? You aren't usable yet. You've got to come to the end of yourself and recognize, God, I need you. I need you more than anybody else ever needed you. But you can't stop there. And you've got to lay your life down and then God will give it back. And now you have to say, Father, it's not me, but it's Christ living on the inside of me. And I'll speak to this dead person and I'll command them to come back to life. I'll command blind eyes to open. I'll speak to demons and they will obey me. Not because of who you are, but because of who God is in you. Those are not opposites. Those, it's like a coin. You've got to have both sides of that in operation. You've got to get out of yourself and yet be bold and confident in who you are in the Lord. And to do that, you're going to have to have one of these burning bush experiences where you lay your life down and say, God, it's yours. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be anything. If my plans aren't your plans, then here they are. You're welcome to... Throw any of them away that you want. Until you do that and have this burning bush experience where you lay your life down and take it up by the tail, you won't have that confidence. And you know, I won't take time to turn over there, but later after the children of Israel went through 40 years in the wilderness, towards the end of that time, there was an instance where God had had Moses strike the rock and out of the rock flowed enough water to feed three million Jews and all of their animals in the desert. It was absolutely miraculous. But at the end of those 40 years, the people were without water again. And the Lord told Moses this time, just speak to the rock. Don't strike it. 
And so Moses and Aaron went out and stood before this rock and they said, you rebels, do we have to fetch water out of the rock for you? And he took his rod, the rod of God, and struck the rock again. And nothing happened because God told him to speak to it. So he struck it a second time. And when he hit it the second time, the water gushed out. But the Lord spoke to Moses and he says, Moses, because you didn't honor me and do what I told you to do, you aren't entering into the promised land. You're going to die and Joshua will take them into the promised land. By that time, Moses had spent 120 years following God and doing these things, spent 40 years with the Jews in the wilderness. And you got to remember that in the Exodus chapter 32, God got so upset with the Israelites that he told Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to wipe them out and I'll start over and make a new nation out of you. God got so mad at them, he just wanted to kill them all. All Moses did was hit the rock. And yet God refused to allow him to enter into the promised land. And I've always heard my whole life that it's because of the symbolism that, you know, it says in... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that the Israelites drank of that rock that followed them and that rock is Christ and that you can't crucify Christ a second time. So smiting it a second time was like crucifying him again and, that, and it was symbolism and he broke the symbolism. And I can see that, but you know, to me, that just seems harsh that God would make Moses, his entire life goal, miss it because he broke the symbolism when God was willing to kill them all. And you know, I believe that that symbolism might have been, I mean, I think that that analogy holds true, but you know what I really believe the issue was? Moses had been self-willed once before and decided he would do God's will his own way and he killed an Egyptian and cost the children of Israel 30 years extra bondage and after 80 years... And learning that, God, I can't. I'll do it your way. That self-will was beginning to manifest again. And God told him to speak to the rock. Moses thought it would be more dramatic to hit the rock. And you know what was happening? He was once again exerting his own wisdom, going to do it his way. And if God hadn't dealt with that harshly, the children of Israel could have spent another 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't just symbolism. God did this to protect the children of Israel from Moses' self-will and him getting out and doing things his own way again. And brothers and sisters, I guarantee you, you don't ever learn this lesson. It's not like you just have an encounter with the Lord and praise God, you deal with your selfishness and you deal with your own leaning on your own understanding and you get it fixed and praise God, you'll never have another problem with that. No, Moses in the fourth chapter laid his life down. In the 14th chapter, here he was back again. Oh God, I can't do anything. Would you please move? And God had to say, get up off your face and take that rod and use what I gave you. And so he began to start veering back over this way and God had to bring him back. And then towards the end of his life, here he was self-willed again, wanting to hit the rock instead of speak to it and obey God. And God had to bring him back. Your Christian life is never just straight as an arrow and perfect. It's more like this. We have to deal with our flesh and we just move in the general direction. But you've got to be sensitive to the Lord because you'll never do anything perfectly. When we moved into our last building, we tried to get in by September. 
of 2004, I believe it was, because that's when school started and we needed it. And it was a major project, $3.2 million that I had to raise. And I made a commitment. I wouldn't take out a loan. And I was trusting God. And in 14 months, we brought in $3.2 million and got it done debt-free, which you'd have to understand where we were to get the full impact of that. It was a major miracle. But we didn't make our September deadline. It was actually November when we moved in. School had already been going for three or four months. We had people sitting on top of people in our other building. And we didn't make it. And it was a hardship. We had to put porta potties out in the parking lot. And all the guys had to go out in the snow and use the porta potties so all the women could have the indoor toilets. I mean, it was a crisis situation. It was pretty bad. And when we moved in in November, I had some students come to me and say, Are you disappointed? Did this depress you? that you didn't get in in September. Instead, it was two and a half months later. And I said, depress me. I said, man, it's a miracle that we're in here at all. I said, I missed it by two or three months, but I said, I've never done anything perfect in my life. I'm just thrilled to be in here now. I said, it's a miracle. But there's some people that see, they just think the Christian life is, you just believe and everything works perfectly. It's not like that. God uses us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. Don't be upset if you believe for perfect health and you get a cold and it ruins your record, but you get over it in two days instead of two weeks. It's no big deal. It doesn't mean that God failed. It just means, you know what, you're growing and stuff. You'll never do anything perfectly. And if you think that you have to, You'll be so cautious, so reserved that you'll never do anything. And you'll never get anything accomplished. People who change the world are people that aren't afraid of jumping out there and doing something. You've got to do something. So praise God. You need to learn some lessons at Moses' expense. And instead of you having to spend 40 years in the desert with the scorpions and the snakes and everything, you, right here in America could take this word and you can make some decisions that would change your life. And you know, again, my testimony, I was raised, I was a a well-off kid, middle income family. I never went through hardships. I never did any of those things. And I had an encounter with the Lord as an 18-year-old. I wasn't in crisis. I encountered God. I made myself a living sacrifice and God changed my life without all of the hardship, the hardship that I had in my life was self-induced because I wasn't understanding things. And you know what? You don't have to be wrung out and just go through the ringer and defeated and hurt and beat up to have God use you. Now, if that's your experience, praise God, whatever it takes, turn to the Lord. But I'm saying that you could just take this word. The Holy Spirit could quicken to you tonight that you aren't God. And that you don't have as much wisdom as God. And that you need to lay your life down and let God be in control. And you don't have to go through terrible hardship to come to the end of yourself. You could do it by revelation. The Holy Spirit can reveal it to you. And you can make a commitment and say, God, I want to put you first and foremost. And if you would do that, you could do it tonight. You can make that decision tonight. And I promise you it's a process It's not something that you just do one time and it's over with. It's a process. But you got to start it. 
You know, some of you have heard me give this illustration, but Jim Irwin, one of the astronauts that walked on the moon, was a friend of mine. I was on some television programs with him, and we swapped books and stuff. And I was interested because when people walked on the moon in 1969, I was in Vietnam, and I didn't get to see all of that stuff. And so I missed all of that. And I've always been interested in this. And so when I met an astronaut, I wanted to ask him these questions about, it, like, how do you go to the bathroom in weightlessness and stuff? You know, the things you don't normally hear about and stuff. And so anyway, I was interested and I was asking him all of these questions. And I was just uh, pumping him for all of these answers. And I thought that when they shot that capsule to the moon, that it was so much technology and it was just perfect. And as he began to describe it to me, what they really did was blast off and then they threw that capsule at the moon. And every 10 minutes for four days, they had a course correction. And he said sometimes that capsule would be going 90 degrees opposite to the the moon. And they'd have to have a course correction 90 degrees. Other times it was just a fraction of a degree off. But every 10 minutes for four and a half days, they had a course correction. So instead of that capsule just going perfectly to the moon, it actually went like this. And that's how it got there. And then they had a 500 mile long landing area. And when they landed on the moon and he got out of the capsule, he said he was within five feet of missing that landing strip. 500 miles long and they nearly missed it. They just barely got inside of that landing area. And as he was describing this to me, it totally changed my whole perception of how they did it. But you know what? They did it. And the Lord spoke to me as he was saying that and said, this is the way it is. When you deal with yourself and you make a commitment that, God, I want you to be first, you just blast off. You head in that direction. And then there's going to be a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. And you know what? Some of you, you might make a decision and say, God, I want to yield to you. I want you to control my life. I don't want to be leaning under my own understanding and you make this commitment and before you get out of the building, somebody grabs the last tape set that you wanted. And it's an opportunity for a course correction. Before you get out of the parking lot, somebody wants to get in and you normally are going to speed up so that they can't get in and you aren't going to let them get in front of you. It's an opportunity for a course correction to say, you know what? God bless you. Let you go first. You will have a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. But that doesn't mean that you didn't blast off. It doesn't mean that you didn't move in that direction. It's a process. I'm still dealing with myself. It surprises me sometimes. It never surprises God, but it surprises me how I can be and some of the things that I can do. And you know what? When I see it, I don't think, oh God, I wasn't really sold out and committed to you. Instead, I think, whoops, another course correction. I guarantee you, I gave everything I had to the Lord March the 23rd, 1968, and I've never reneged on it. It has been my all-consuming desire for 42 years to be a living sacrifice to God. Have I done it right? No. You can ask Jamie. You can ask my staff. No, I don't do it right. But you know what? That's been my desire. And when the Lord shows me that I'm messing up and that I'm doing things, man, I've never deviated from that desire. That's what I want to do. And God just gets me back on track. Amen? 
But God wants you to have this type of a relationship. You need to come to a burning bush experience. You know, for some of you, this conference this week is a burning bush. You heard that we were having something and you turned aside to see if there's anything going to happen. And you know what? The Holy Spirit's speaking to you. And God's asking some of you, would you turn your life over? Would you quit leaning under your own understanding? Would you quit doing things because it's lucrative or because this is what you were told you were supposed to be? Would you follow the desires that's in your heart? Would you lay your life down and let me take control? Some of you think if I did, he'd send me to the darkest corner of Africa. Well, somebody's got to go there, but you know what? If he wants you to go to Africa, you'd love it. You'd delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You would love it. I went to Pritchett and I loved it. That's worse than Africa. And I loved it. You'll never regret making an absolute, total, sold out commitment to God. You'll never regret it. I can promise you. Absolutely. You know, let me ask tonight, is there anybody here who just... You have... We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.